Welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Isn't God good? Amen. Let's read the word. Today I want to start a series called The Disciples Life. The Disciples Life. And I'm going to take this series uh, and and literally we're going to talk about the disciples' life and as we go through the series. So today we're going to start talking about the disciples' marriage. Oh yeah. Yeah, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about how to be married and have a good married life. How many of y'all like like to have a good married life? Just a, you know, I, I don't believe in having these, you know, uh, small little uh, bad, like, oh, I'm just surviving, I've survived in marriage. No, how about we thrive in marriage? Amen? Amen. So we're going to talk about the disciples of marriage today. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39 in the NIV. Read it together with me. It'll go, I think it, it'll go, yep, there it is. Do not suppose, everyone read, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Amen. Woo! (laughs) What does that have to do with marriage? You'll see in a minute. Turn to somebody and tell them you're glad they're here and then they can be seated. This is an incredibly strange scripture when you're thinking about marriage. But I'm drawing a particular focus, not on what is being said here, but on what is not being said. Not on what is being said, but what is not being said. And we'll read it again in just a moment, and you'll see it with me. But this scripture is very uh, connected to the whole idea of discipleship. And honestly, when we read that scripture, it shocks us and it makes us feel like that Jesus said that. I mean, that sounds strange that Jesus would say that because, you know, we, we always talk about Jesus being about peace and Jesus being about joy and Jesus being about love and all of these things. And he is about all those things. Well, why would he say something like this? And we're going to talk about it in just a moment, but I want you to understand the reason why you would read something like that and go, oh my gosh, is because we have have made this mistake of turning what Christianity really is into more of a, a personal individual, like get me into heaven type mentality as opposed to uh, giving my whole self to God. In other words, I'm adding Jesus to me but I'm not necessarily giving myself to him. I've got my life and then I add Jesus because I want to be saved. I want to be in the family of God. I want good things happening in my life, but I'm not going to commit everything to him. And that is basically what he's speaking about here. 
Now, you obviously realize that Jesus is using hyperbolic language. He's not, he's not meaning you should hate your mother-in-law, right? He's not meaning that you should be enemies with your family. That's not what he's meaning. He's speaking very hyperbolically to prove a point, and he talks about the point at the end. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me right? Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So that's the whole point. He's saying that your love for me should be so high. It should be so unbelievably committed and deeply devoted that compared to your love for me, the love that you have for your family should not even compare. It's not like do I love Jesus more than my family? No. Do I love my kids more than I do Jesus? No. Do I love my mom more than I love Jesus? No. He's saying, you've got to make the kind of commitment that says, it doesn't matter what my family decides to do. I'm going to follow Jesus. This is what he was saying. And it sounds horrible the way he says it, but he's making a very profound point, especially in that culture at that time, because the familial dynamic in their culture was much different than it is today. And so families there stayed together on, on, on big levels uh, as early marriages would still live with family, live with mom and dad. There was a whole different kind of dynamic, but it's still the same truth. And that is that we must love God, love Jesus, follow Jesus as a priority over every other thing in our life. But I'm drawing your attention to what he didn't say. Let's go back and read it. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What relational aspect did he not talk about? Marriage. He didn't mention spouse. Now, that is not to say he's saying you can love your spouse more than me. That's not what he's saying. But you have to understand, when you get married, the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verse 5 through 9, uh, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied when they were asking him about divorce. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become so in the dynamics and in the economy of God and the kingdom of God, man and woman who are married under Christ and in Christ are not considered to him as two, but one. And so he's saying it would be ridiculous for me to say to you, uh, bring that up in that context. And some of y'all say, well, I don't even need this idea of making God a priority to be mad at my mother-in-law. <laughs> Some of y'all already got that dynamic. You don't need to involve Jesus. The truth is, though, we as people sometimes elevate relationships above where they should be because we choose them over our commitment to God. Oh, this happens all the time with our children because we want certain things for our children. We commit to our children things that absolutely pulls us away from what God wants for them and for us. And so we have to be careful that we keep things in alignment. I read something this morning I thought was so good. It said, uh, people do what they value. 
So when we say I'm too busy, we're not really too busy. We just don't value the things that are valuable as much as we do the things that are unvaluable or invaluable or not invite, not valuable. How about that? So we have to get this mindset of what discipleship is. Discipleship is this idea that um, I, I am not being a Christian. I am not, I'm not acting Christian. I'm being a disciple. There's a difference. There's a difference between uh, I believe in Jesus and I'm committed 100% to Jesus. And so what is the difference? The difference is, I would say, lifestyle. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, you are following him wholeheartedly. So now he becomes the very centermost point of your life. And, and you know, a lot of times we make these uh, priority ideas. We, we say, how many of y'all have ever done a priority list? You've been trying to really prepare for, I'm going to get my stuff together. I'm going to be organized and I'm going to make a priority so I make sure I do what's important. And we make these priority lists. And, and what do all of our priority lists say? Well, first we got, well, God's at the top. God's at the top of the priority list because we want to make sure God's first in our life. And then we say, well, after that, my, my spouse is my priority. And then after that, my kids are my priority. And after that, my relationships and my career. And, and we make this list. But then if we go and look at our lives and we look at the list of priorities based on the actual operation of our life, we find that time, talent, treasure are given a lot to things that are not on this list or, or would really make this list look out of order. Because we're viewing it wrong. God is not a priority. Everybody say this after me. God is not my priority. <laughs> Some of y'all like, I am not saying that. He's not. God's too big to be on your list. God shouldn't be first in your life. God should be your life. See, this is the life of a disciple. My lifestyle is based on being centered around God. His will, His ways, His words. It's not like... God can be put up there at the same, he's on the same list with my finances. He's on the same list with my career. He's on the same list with my, no, God's too big to be on that list. What you should do is put God in the center of your life and then let him influence your finances. Let him influence your family. Let him influence your marriage. Let him influence your career. Let him influence, and everything that you do flows from him at the center. That's discipleship. And it's not for the purpose of all those things. All those things are going to happen for you because he says they will, but it's not for focusing on them. It's for focusing on him. This is why we have Matthew 6.33. We've talked about it so many times, but Matthew 6.33, Jesus teaching the disciples, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Well, what were all those things he was talking about? He said, Gentiles, he was speaking to Jews at the time, he said, Gentiles are people who are pagan, people who don't know God. They worry about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink, what I'm going to wear, where am I going to live? All these things that are important to the person or to the individual. This is what people who don't know God think about and worry about and are concerned about. They prioritize things that should never be a priority. 
But God says, seek me first and my righteousness, my way of doing things. And what happens then is he brings all those things to you. Doesn't mean you become lazy and do nothing. It means you allow him to lead you in every aspect of your life. All the decisions you make, you consider him first. What you're going to do with your family, you consider him first. What you're going to do with your marriage, you consider him first. What you're going to do with your career, you consider him first. When's the last time you were making a decision about something to do at, at your work or at your job or in the boardroom or, you know, whatever, your business as an entrepreneur, and you literally stopped and said, what does God want? How does this play into the kingdom? How does this affect and impact the kingdom? Because that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is being a follower of a teacher. It's also being a, a servant to a king. Because our rabbi happens to be the king of all kings. Are you with me? And isn't it beautiful that our king doesn't just relegate us to, to servanthood, but he adopts us into family. I am not a son of God who has to serve. I am a servant of God who gets to be a son. There's a difference, amen? Listen, we have to understand what discipleship is, how it impacts our lives, and, and in order to understand how it should affect our marriage. Man, you guys should be taking notes on this. Uh, uh, it says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this in the law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So let's just stop and break this down for just a moment because there's some things that need to be said here. Number one, God created male and female. Now listen. I don't care what the deception is going on in the world today. I don't care that, that we are acknowledging and acting as if a, a mental health issue that should be helped, we're acting as if it's normal and it's right, and the Bible deals with it, the Apostle Paul dealt with it, Moses dealt with it, God deals with it, and Jesus deals with it. And people say, well, Jesus never talked about this. No, Jesus talked from a perspective. Now, listen to me very carefully and don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. Jesus talked from a perspective that was heterosexual. That's what you need to understand. Well, why didn't he say more about, because the assumption is that's not within the context of normality. And so when Jesus did deal with those kinds of things, he dealt with them very clearly, but that wasn't the normative of what he was teaching. He dealt from a place of heterosexuality because he was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Nothing was made that was made without him. So Jesus clearly states God created male and female. And I feel so sorry and my heart hurts and breaks for people who are struggling with this, this absolute uh, deception in their mind. And we should never, ever, ever approach them as if they're some kind of special interest group and we're another special interest group and we're going to hate on them and be mean to them and talk to them and talk about them in a way that would be ugly and mean-spirited. No, we are here to help. That's what believers are here to do. We're not here to maim people. We're not here. We're not going to be like the disciples saying, Jesus, they're not following us. Let's call fire down from heaven. Jesus was like, 
did, what did, what, what? Have you not been watching me? This is one of those moments where Jesus said, how long must I be with you? What if you were Jesus' team and he said that to you? You'd be like, oh man, we are just a bunch of messed up people. No, we don't treat people that way. We treat them with love and with respect, but we don't deviate from the truth. And the reason that this is going too far and now is becoming a social problem, it is a social contagion at this point. It's becoming a trend at this point. We need to acknowledge it. We need to be smart about it. We need to stop giving into that thinking. We need to understand this is a social contagion. It's becoming trendy among the young. And now we've got a bigger problem than just actual people dealing with this mental health issue. So we need to go back to the truth. Instead of accommodating deceit, we need to go back to the truth. And what is the truth? God created male and female. Right? And then it says, it, it goes on to say, because Jesus instituted or God instituted at the very beginning of time, marriage. So the whole normality for relationships as it, as it pertains to marriage is between one man and one woman. That's how God established it. And the second thing we see here is when a man and a woman marry in God's eyes, they become one flesh, no longer two. And so if you're struggling and you're not, you're not married and you're in that relationship where you want to be married, you're thinking about marriage, but you're playing marriage, you need to stop that. That's not biblical and it's not okay with God. Stop telling yourself it's okay. It's not okay. Now, every, now listen, I'm say, why am I saying that? I know this is tough for everybody, isn't it? It's the Bible. It's not me. It's the Bible. And why am I saying it? Because everybody's fine when we get up and say something about something we know clearly is perverse, but when we deal with our own sin of not handling the things of sex and relationships and marriage the way God said to do it, we don't want to hear that part. But there's no difference in fornication and homosexual sex. Okay, everybody got quiet. He just said it. He said it. Listen, we got to stop being foolish about this. And the reason we are foolish about it a lot of times is because we don't know the truth because we're not studying the truth. I'm not being honest with ourselves. I can't be in a fornicator and then judge somebody who else is caught up in homosexuality. Come on. <laughs> Smile at me. Say, I don't want to hear about it, know about it, talk about it. Yeah, well, we're going to. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, and then he says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then it says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So I just want to make this extra point. Your marriage is not a couple, it's a community. This is how important community is to God. Why is community so important to God? Why? Because God himself is a community. In our God, behold, O Israel, behold, the Lord your God is one. Our God, in the context of who he is, in 
in him is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Function completely together, total unity, total harmony, one. They're not three separate entities, they're one entity. He is one entity. You say, well, the Bible doesn't even say the word Trinity. The Bible doesn't say a lot of words, but we know what's right and what's wrong. We see the Trinity at the beginning. The Bible said that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. The Word was declared and created all things, and the Father was there speaking all of life into existence. That's the Trinity. We see the Trinity numerous times throughout the Old Testament. And we see it in the New Testament where Jesus, the Word, was standing on the banks. And he was about to be uh, uh, baptized. And John baptized him in the water. He comes up. The Bible said the Holy Spirit like a dove. He's not a dove, y'all. He's like a dove that flittered down onto Jesus. And then the Father spoke. This is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. Trinity. And so God himself is a trinity. Now don't get it twisted. We're not polytheistic. We're just saying that that has how God himself is made. And in, in that context, you can see throughout the word how God works and operates. That's why he created us not just for a relationship with him, but also for a relationship with others like us. God looked on Adam and he said, Adam, you, this is not good. Everything else in creation he said was good, but this is not good. What is not good? The fact that you don't have someone like you to relate to. So God says in that moment in context that it's as important or almost as important that you have a relationship horizontally as you do vertically. If you have a relationship with me, but you also need a relationship with someone who's like you that also serves me. And when we do that together under Christ, it's you, your spouse, and then the third part of the threefold cord is God. And if you really put your relationship in that context and you really say to yourself, look, I'm going to take my marriage and I'm going to put it under God, which what does that mean? It means I'm a disciple. And in the context of disciple, my whole life my whole lifestyle is about Jesus. It's about the way he does things. It's about his will, his word, and his ways. Are you, are you guys tracking with me today? So it's about his will and his word's ways. So everything I approach, everything I approach, I approach with that in my mind. Like, I'm going to do marriage God's way. I'm going to do friendship God's way. I'm going to do my career God's way. I'm going to do my family God's way. Why? Because I am God's. I belong to him. The apostle Paul said, I am not my own. I am bought with a price. And the price you were bought with is priceless. It has so much value and it's so great. And how dare us ever take advantage or take for granted the price that was paid. Are you with me? So our marriage could be everything God wants it to be if we do it the way God says to do it. And when we decide we're going to do it our way instead of his way, that's when we come into all these problems and all these issues. Listen, we've got a, we've got a problem with marriage today. People, people are not getting married like they used to. The numbers are way down, extremely down. And it's causing a lot of problems in, amongst believers. Because God, it's, where, did, where did marriage come in in the priority of things? 
first. Before the church was instituted, marriage was instituted. Before society was instituted, marriage was instituted. Before uh, uh, corporations were instituted, marriage was instituted. Before government entities were instituted, marriage was instituted. The first institution that was created on the face of the planet was marriage. So why is it so hard for us to figure out when we look around our society and how it's splintering and going into all kinds of different directions that we wouldn't immediately backtrack and go, where could be the root of the problem? And what we find is the root of the problem is the breakdown of marriage and family, period. Well, there's a lot of other contributing factors. Sure they are. Sure there are a lot of other contributing factors. But the core comes back to Marriage. And here's the thing that we all need to be challenged by. That issue of divorce, that issue of breaking up, that issue of going separate ways is just as statistically high in the church as it is in the world. <clears throat> it's funny looking at y'all's faces. Are you with me today? or Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now you might say, well, this is bringing me conviction. Good. I'm not mad at you. Are you mad at me? Don't be mad at me. What do we do when we're convicted? We obey. All conviction is is correction. That's all is when the Holy Spirit says to you, you need to listen to that word. He's talking to you. And, and, and you need to get this right. You need to make this right. And, and listen, young people, if you're not right in this, look, 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 look to me. Don't, don't go out and go, well, we got to get this in order. We got to get this in order. We got to do that. And we got to do this. And we got to do that. And we got to do this before we can make it. No, just make it right. Then do all that. Come on. Just turn. Turn away from your way of thinking. Turn away from your way of living. Turn away from your, the philosophies and ideologies of the world and turn strictly and strongly towards the ideas and of the will of God and the word of God and allow him to change you. Amen. Francis Chan, we've said it before, but I love what Francis Chan said. He said, if I come across something in the Bible that I don't agree with, I must assume I'm wrong. And what do we do? We just turn the page. I bet I can find something I like. Come on. Now, how many of y'all want to be on the good side of things at the end of time? How many of y'all want that? How many of you, as the closer we get towards the end, you want to be on the good side of stuff? Like you don't want to be in the goat pile, you want to be in the sheep pile. You know what I'm saying? When God starts separating stuff, you'll be like, let me in the sheep pile. I don't want to be in the goat pile. Right? Do you know the Bible says in Timothy that there's going to come a day in the world, in the church, in amongst believers, that people are going to reject truth because they don't want to hear it and they're going to get themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, the whole concept is this. There are certain things I want to hear and there are things I don't want to hear. So I'm going to gather together around somebody who will preach whatever, whatever I like hearing instead of gathering around somebody who will tell me the truth about what God thinks about life and about our situation. Are you with me? I don't want to be that person who has itching ears. 
I want to be that person who says, show me the truth, God. If there's something in me that's wrong, fix it. I don't want it to be wrong. Convict me by the Holy Spirit. I pray it every day. I pray it every day. God, reveal yourself to me. If there's something in me that's prideful, if there's something in me that's arrogant, if there's something in me that's unfaithful, if there's something in me that's sinful, Father, forgive me and, 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 and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I pray it every single day. When I pray, Father, forgive me, and I pray I forgive those who've come against me. I, I, I pray, God, change me. When God convicts us, we don't run from conviction. We listen to conviction. We listen to the Holy Spirit and we obey it. God, you're right. First John chapter 1 verse 9 says, we ask, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. We make God a liar. But if we do have sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then 1 John 1 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? The word confess literally means, literally means agree with. So what it's saying there is when the Holy Spirit says, this is not right, you're going the wrong direction, you need to turn, you need to change, you need to do it. He's just saying, I want you to agree with me. Stop listening to yourself. Stop listening to the world around you. Stop listening to other people's ideas. Stop listening to philosophy and listen to me. I'm saying this is not right. This is going to hurt you. This is going to harm you. Change. And all he's saying is we just turn to God and say, you know what, God? I agree. This isn't the right thing. I know it's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of courage for me to repent and go a different direction. I know, but your grace is sufficient for me, and you will empower me to be able to do this. And I make a decision right now to agree with you and to go your direction and to stop going my own way. Are you all with me? The Bible says correction from God is good. How many of y'all love being corrected? Come on we're going to be here for the next few minutes. You ain't going nowhere. At least I hope you're not. How many just love it? You love to be correct. You love for somebody to tell you you did something wrong. I'm glad we got an honest crew in here today. Nobody really loves to be corrected. But David or Solomon taught us you should love to be corrected. And anytime you're struggling with being corrected, you got an ego problem. That's about bottom line. You got your full of pride and you need to go ask God to forgive you. Are you with me? God said he corrects those he loves. He says a good father corrects his children because he loves his children. So he infers, if I don't correct you, I don't love you. How many of y'all like being corrected by God now? See, when God convicts us, all he's doing is correcting us. Now, let's be careful now. I know I'm going a little bit on a theological rant here, and we're going to get to this. This is going to take us several weeks to talk about the marriage, but I'm, I'm, I've got to lay a good foundation. We've got to be careful about some teaching that has crept into the church. We've got to be careful about it. And that is we're getting confused about the difference between conviction and condemnation. And shame and guilt. Okay? And I just want you to know, the Holy Spirit convicts you. He's working to improve you. He's working to help you. He's working to change you. But if you start have feelings of shame and guilt about your past, and you feel like you're being accused, 
You need to understand, that's not God doing that. That's the devil. The Bible says he is the accuser of the brethren. So if you're being overwhelmed about things that, is, that are already under the blood, that you've already asked forgiveness for, and God has already forgiven you of, you need to stop. You need to tell the devil, you are a liar. I am free from that. I am forgiven of that. I am the righteousness of God in Christ, and I will not be a party to you condemning and, and jamming me up over things that I've already been forgiven for. Amen? Now, hold on. Hold on. You might not clap if you listen to the rest. But the truth is now, we've gotten confused. Because now we think anytime we feel bad, that's condemnation and shame and guilt. There's something that's crept into Christianity that you should never feel bad. You should never feel any twinge of guilt because that's condemnation. That's not true. Because when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you will feel guilty because, everybody say it with me, you are I am. And when the Holy Spirit brings it to your attention, he's bringing it out for you to see. He's not bringing it out for you to be defeated. He's not bringing you out to accuse you. He's not bringing you out to beat you up over it. He's not bringing you out to hit you over the head with the club. No, no. He's saying, come to me, get forgiveness on this, and be free from this thing that is running rampant over your life. That's what he's saying. But every time you feel bad, now listen, here's the danger. When you feel guilty over something you've done wrong and the Holy Spirit convicts you of it, and then you just act like it's guilt and shame and condemnation, think about that. Think about what you're doing. The Holy Spirit is correcting you, and you're saying, get behind me, devil. Oh, come on, y'all didn't hear that. The Holy Spirit's convicting you and you felt bad about something and you need to make a turn and change. But now you think because you are a Christian, you should never feel guilty. No. Don't rebuke God for correcting you. Don't get into guilt and shame. Don't get into condemnation, but don't get them confused either. Because when the Holy Spirit comes to you, how many of you have ever had a parent correct you? How many of you have ever had to correct your children? Was it just a lovely experience? Did it feel great? You know, my dad used to always tell me, he used to always say, David, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. And I'd think in my mind, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I think in my mind, you're an idiot. Because I've been spanked before and this is going to hurt me a lot. It's not going to hurt you at all. Until I became a father. And my wife will laugh about this because she says, I never disciplined our kids at all. She did it all. <laughs> she said, I was soft. Well, they're girls, okay? I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a girly kind of guy. And I, raising girls is like, well, there's just hair everywhere. But anyway. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, no one likes it. It's not a good experience. It's not, it's not wonderful. No. And, 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 and don't get this idea that God's just up there, ooh, I can't wait till they mess up so I can stomp on them. Or I can give them a good spanking. No. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, 
They're about to touch a hot pot on a stove, and it's going to burn them extremely bad if they don't stop. And so he intervenes to convict you and to say, listen, where your heart is taking you is going to destroy you, and you need to make a turn right now because I love you, and I don't want that for you. You don't want that for you, right? Are you hearing me? Is everybody with me? So when it comes to marriage, we need to be thinking in line with allowing the Holy Spirit to guide our life, to approach our marriage, to approach our relationships, to approach our career, to approach a disciple's life is a life that puts God at the center and allows God to truly touch every aspect of our life and even be willing, hello, to lose our life to gain it. You could say that better this way. You could say it's the same thing, but in our vernacular, it would be you could find what's best for you if you'll stop trying to do it your way. Because God's way is always going to turn out better for you, so stop trying to do it your way. Do you realize that when you're arguing about whether you should or shouldn't or what's right or what's wrong and, it, and you've got the word right there to tell you and when, and when you're arguing with that, you're literally arguing with God. You're literally saying with God, the, the God of the universe, the king of all kings, the first and the last, the one who is not affected by time or isn't even in context of time. He stands outside of it because he's so unbelievable, creative, and huge. He is not affected by time or eternity. They exist because he exists. This is the person you're arguing with. I feel like he knows better than you do. And I do about what is best for you or for me. See, the problem is we think God looks at us as adults. That's laughable. How many of you, when your kids were little, and I'm, I'm closing. How many of you, when your kids were little, <laughs> you had to correct them all the time? And you believe you know what's best for them. How many of you, when your kids were little, know what's best for them? Okay, everybody, if you have children, do you believe that you know what's best for them? Raise your hand. Here's what I thought. I thought when my kids get older, there's going to be a point where I'm, they're going to know and I'm just not going to think that way anymore. Well, that's not true. Because I still think I know what's best for my kids. I'm like, man, come on. Come on, y'all. It just never leaves you as a parent. But I think we think God looks at us as these grown children that know everything we need to know. And see, Christianity is a little bit different than that. Discipleship is a little bit different than that. In the world, in the world, we want our kids to grow up and be independent. How many of y'all want that? You don't necessarily want your kids still living at your house at 40 unless it's absolutely necessary. Amen? And by necessary, I mean you're in trouble and they're coming to help you. Amen. Come on, somebody. Right. You don't want them there because they're still immature and they're playing video games in the basement. Right? This is not what you want. Because you want your why? Why? Because it bothers you? Because it makes you mad because you're afraid people are going to think. No, it's because you care about them. 
because you want what's best for them and they're not maturing and they're not growing. And, and so we want them to become independent. The whole process of life works this way. You come into life, you're totally dependent. Like you can't eat by yourself. You can't change your own diaper. You can't take care of yourself. You can't do anything. If there's not an adult around to help you, you're done for. You're going to die. So you're totally dependent. But then as you grow and as you develop, you begin to have independence. You start thinking for yourself. You start getting a little bit of a struggle with your parents because you know what's best for you or you think you do. And so now you start this little conflict that happens that your parents have to be gracious through and help, help you and coach you and develop you and even discipline you and even punish you at times because you're trying to work through the independence that you have or are trying to attain. But then the hope is that you'll become established and independent in such a way that you live a good life. But we want you to step more into that independence by reconnecting now with others, realizing you can't have your best life on your own. And we want you to now become interdependent where you are so established in your independence that you can effectively communicate and connect with others around you and be a good citizen that connects with other people, be a good person that connects with other people. And you're not only benefiting your life now, but you're benefiting the life of others and they're benefiting you. That's independence, dependence, independence, interdependence. That's what we want. But in Christ, it's different. Because here's what we know as believers, as disciples. The more mature we become, wisdom tells us the more dependent we need to be on God. Right now in my life, I'm 50, almost 55. I'm going to get that senior discount, y'all. You know, I used, to, I used to be like, hey, don't be sending me nothing like that in the mail. But now I'm like, shoot, I'll take it. But I'm 55 and the older I get, the more I realize I need him. I need him. I need him. I, 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 I haven't figured this out. I don't know how all this works. I don't understand everything that's going on. I don't know how to make my life work out the way it should. I, I don't know how to overcome problems. I don't know how to deal with issues, not on my own. I need Him. I need Him, and I depend on Him, and I trust Him more than I have ever depended and trusted. And you would think that would be the opposite, because why do I need God so much to be involved in my life? Because I'm a grown adult Christian now, and I can do my own thing, and He, he trusts me with that. No, 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 no. He trusts that you're a human, and the further and more independent of Him you become, the more wrecked your life is going to be. So discipleship means I'm stepping into dependence on God, not away from Him. You never outgrow God's parenting in your life, ever. Amen. Oh, God is good, isn't He? Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, God is good. Next week, we're going to talk about the five functions of a disciple's marriage. The five functions of a disciple's marriage, and they are devotion, dedication, determination, deliberation, and demonstration. And I'm going to show you how centering your life around Jesus can impact your marriage in a way that can truly make it a thriving, wonderful, beautiful experience. And for you young people that aren't married yet, 
I'm telling you, God is going to use this to establish some principles in you that are going to cause you to approach marriage the right way. Amen? And that you do need to get married. Amen? Unless God has, unless God has called you to be single, and if He has called you to be single, then be single. Because there are people like that. But if He hasn't, get married. I'm telling y'all, come on, everybody say it with me. Get married. Come on, get married. All right. You girls, not too fast. Anyway. <laughs> they seem excited about it, don't they? Yes, get married. All right. Father, we thank you for your word today. We are so glad. And Thank you for being a part of the Summit Church podcast today. We pray that God used today's podcast to draw you closer to Him. You can stay in the know at Summit by following us on social media. Thank you again for being a part. This is the Summit Church podcast.